Hello there, welcome to episode 13 of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald, the former director of public prosecutions and barrister at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen, also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in public law, criminal law and human rights law. So this week, Ken and I thought we should have a break from focusing on events in Britain and take a more global view and perhaps with less focus on law and a bit more on politics viewed through the eyes of someone who knows Britain very well, but as an outside observer. And our guest this week is the Nigerian entrepreneur, businessman and philanthropist, Keem Bello-Osagi. I've known Keem since 1975, when as a 17-year-old student at Atlantic College, Keem returned to the college where he'd been a few years before me to attempt to teach me the theory of knowledge and we've been good friends ever since. But teaching me the theory of knowledge is not the height of Keem's stellar academic career. He studied law at Cambridge. He received an MA in politics, philosophy, and economics from Oxford. And if that wasn't enough, he'd ended an MBA at the Harvard Business School. Born and brought up in Lagos, Keem has had an extraordinary career as a businessman, entrepreneur, philanthropist, educator, and at times advisor to presidents of Nigeria. He's currently the chairman of the board of the FSDH Holding Company, which includes amongst its subsidiaries a merchant bank, an asset management company, a pension fund administration company, and a securities trading company. He's played a key role in the Nigerian economy for more than 30 years through his participation and development of several private sector businesses, particularly in energy, finance, and telecommunications. He's a member of the Global Board of Advisors for the Council of Foreign Relations, the preeminent nonpartisan think tank in America. He's also a member of the International Advisory Council of the Brookings Institute. Keem is married to Maima Bella Osagi. She's the founding partner of Udo Adoma and Bella Osagi law firm in Lagos. And Keem and Maima are major philanthropists who believe in the power of education. They're major donors to the African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg and have endowed a fund for the promotion of Africa at Yale. They're involved in many other educational initiatives in Africa and around the world, too numerous to mention. In addition to all of that, Keem teaches a number of courses at the Harvard Business School under the heading Africa Rising. And he's the chair of the Board of Trustees at Harvard's Center for African Studies. Keem, after that lengthy introduction, uh, welcome to Double Jeopardy. It's great to have you here. Uh, Tim, it's wonderful to have you here. And uh, Ken, um, it's, a, it, it, it's a delight to have this opportunity to do a little bit of, shall I say, intellectual jousting, which, we, which I hope is also productive. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I look forward to it very much too, Keem, and thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, Keem, um, we're going to get on uh, a bit later to discuss some of the issues that arise in the courses that you teach at the Harvard Business School, and then in particular to focus on um, the, the, the rather different approach taken by a number of African nations to the war between Russia and Ukraine. But um, having said that we're trying to get away from British politics, I can't resist asking you, not least because you teach a course, I think, on leadership at Harvard Business School. Um, what's your view about leadership in Britain at the moment? Uh, you've almost answered that question yourself. 
Um, I think for uh, most foreigners, myself included, uh, there's a there's certainly a surprise uh, about the extent to which we can say that leadership seems to have degenerated in Great Britain. Uh, we've always, in many senses, looked up uh, to Britain for very uh, purposeful leadership, for a very strong sense of direction. Uh, it is often said that the first past the post principle uh, is meant to elect strong governments. So the coalition governments, more commonplace in Europe, don't happen in Great Britain. And the separation of powers that is a feature of US politics uh, doesn't take place in England. And therefore, England, or Great Britain, I should say, is supposed to be in many ways a citadel of very decisive government. So the events of the last um, year or two are a shock. Now, I think part of that has to do with um, with the fact that I think fewer of Britain's best people are going into politics, and that's a subject for a, a, another conversation. I think, but I think the other part of it has to do with the long-term impact um, of the Brexit debate, the Brexit poisons that have particularly affected the Conservative Party and that are being played out, in my view, on the nation as a whole. Keem, do you think um, a, a part of this has been the loosening ties of loyalty, if you like, between apparent, apparent loosening ties of loyalty between some senior figures in the Conservative Party, as it now is, and our, some of our greater national institutions, the courts, um, the BBC, the civil service, that in a sense, the, the sort of respect in which these institutions were once held by leading Tories um, has, has, has somewhat dissipated since Brexit. Do you, do you think that's a factor? Um, I, I would agree with you that is a factor, but um, the, only, the, the only slight amendment I would make is that um, that has been, that process predated Brexit. I think Brexit has accelerated it. And I noticed it uh, when I look back and see the position of the universities, the position of the courts, you know, the position of the BBC pre-Thatcher period, which is when I was in university here, and the awe, indeed the respect with which they were held. And I think that, um, and, and I think that that started to decrease, I think during the Thatcher period, though I think Margaret Thatcher still retained a respect for those institutions, but I think it has accelerated tremendously um, uh, during the Brexit period. And that, that, that process is also taking place, I think, in the United States as well. So on the one hand, we can talk about it as, as the way in which elites have been, um, are losing their sway. And I think in this case, there are specific institutions that performed a certain role in, in Great Britain are now being challenged. So, so what do you think it was about the Thatcher period? I mean, I agree with you entirely about this. I think all of this does predate Brexit, and I agree that Brexit has simply been an accelerant. But what was it about the Thatcher era, do you think, that, that, that led to this or, or that, that was a sort of fertile ground for this loosening of ties, loosening of respect? Um, I think that um, there are two or three things that come to mind. The first is, I think Thatcher's notion that there's no such thing as society, all right, I think allowed her a greater, should I say, disrespect to those other elements outside of an elective government 
which had a certain role in Great Britain and which she challenged. Now, in some respects, I think her challenges were productive in the sense of breaking up the clubby world in the city, for example. But I think in other respects, you know, I think they have had a rather pernicious effect over the years. That's one. Then I would say the second, I think, had to do with her willingness, I think, to use the dependence of some of these institutions on government funding, all right, and her willingness to subtly use that, that weapon, which made them, uh, which gave them much less independence than they had before that. And then, of course, the encouragement to Murdoch and the rise of Murdoch, which had its own impact on the BBC, for example. I think um, one difference that I would say between the Thatcher era and what we've witnessed in the last few years since uh, Brexit is that however radical the Thatcher government was in, in terms of its dismantling of, of trade union laws, taking on uh, the miners and, and other uh, changes, economic changes, there was still a sort of fundamental respect yes. for the rule of law yes. and, um, uh, and foreign relations and the, uh, and the concept of, of Britain's reputation as, some, as a country that, that complies with international law. Um, and, and that's the difference that I think we, Ken and I in our podcast recently have, have, have commented on is how, how different this this government, these governments have been. I mean, it's difficult. It's, I, mean, I agree with what Tim's just said. It's, it's very difficult to imagine Margaret Thatcher having ever countenanced a deliberate act of international law breaking by the United Kingdom government and then asserting that as a matter of policy. And if you like, rather boasting about it in the way some post-Brexit governments have done. She was very sensitive to the United Kingdom's international reputation as a rules-based rule of law uh, nation, I think. Do you, do you agree, Kim? Yeah, uh, she was sensitive to Britain's position as a rules-based, you know, within a rules-based world. But in addition to that, I think she was also sensitive to, funnily enough, to Britain's moral reputation. And I would put this in the following uh, way. Take the, take the case of South Africa. Now, um, Michael Thatcher was not a particularly lover of the ANC. Okay, and, and, and had a certain view of Mandela, all right? Uh, but much as she held that particular view, all right, she still um, accorded, shall I just say, the, the, the struggle against South Africa a certain respect. And, and, and she still went along with things that she probably didn't in her heart of heart believe herself, but, 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 in, her, but in her own view, um, this is where international moral opinion is, and 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 I will honor it. So in many sense, her rhetoric, okay, was um, much much more radical than 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 her acts. And she was always willing to compromise, very much like Ronald Reagan, while doing so protected by a, a rhetorical flourish, which often gave the impression that she was not compromising. Well, you've just very well described her entire European <laughs> policy scheme. <laughs> yeah, and and. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's like one of those questions that you ask a reporter who's just arrived in a, in a war zone, you know, what's the mood, mood on the street kind of thing. But, I mean, uh, you've just come back, I think, from the US uh, where you've been teaching at, at the Harvard Business School. And, uh, I mean, is, it, is, is the state of Britain a, a topic of discussion and amazement? 
amongst the people that you've been talking to? It is a topic of of of, of discussion, and this is a and people are amazed by what is happening. Um, I, um, I think being a business school, they're even more amazed because this is happening to within a party that is conservative, right wing, and quote unquote capitalists. All right. So this is the kind of thing they would expect to happen to a party on the left, which they tend to regard as more sectarian. All right. Um, it's the party on the left that they expect to be out of tune with the markets. All right. And it's the left that they regard as ideological. So I think that they are, they are genuinely surprised that, 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 that a right-wing party, a conservative party in Great Britain, which they have, which they have always um, portrayed or had portrayed to them as being the natural party of government, is behaving in this particular way. That said, that said um, um, it's not getting an overriding amount of publicity simply because of the state of the world economy Ukraine and the fact that and the US's own problems of polarization. So, so in that sense, that is that 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 is put, uh, putting the UK position um, in a in a far less alarming uh, situation than it would have otherwise have been for American observers. I said we weren't going to concentrate uh, during this discussion um, solely on events in Britain. And um, can you tell us about the course that you're teaching at the Harvard Business School and, and what led you to, um, to, to, to start it and, and the kind of the major issues that, that are arising amongst the students that you're teaching? Um, all right. Um, how I started teaching and how I got to teach it, uh, frankly speaking, was one of those occasions in which you are at a board meeting and you're going on and on and on by the absence of courses on Africa in the curriculum. And yeah. one of the individuals there says, okay, if that's true, why don't you do the teaching? All right. <laughs> and um, and put that way to you uh, by a, a resourceful college master or dean, you find yourself yeah. with no excuse. And so, so you talked yourself into a job. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so, so that's how I got that. That's how I started. Um, but uh, seriously, um, for me, I wanted to do two things. One, to bring Africa to the business school. That is for students at a leading business school to have a knowledge of the African economy, African politics, African business outside of what they read in or what they come across in media. Uh, the second thing was that for me, I'd left Harvard Business School 40 years ago, gone back to Africa, and so many of the lessons that you learned at the business school either didn't apply to Africa or, in fact, uh, were the wrong things to learn. And so I, I was driven by this desire to, in fact, um, teach students the kinds of things I would have liked to have known about the continent of Africa while I was in business school. So, 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 so essentially, um, I, I have these, I do two courses on Africa, I do a course on inclusion and diversity, and I do a course on leadership. And the kinds of things that I, I, I talk about in Africa are, for example, one, 
um, if you're doing business in emerging markets, whether it be Africa, whether it be China, whether it be Vietnam, the role of the government is of such fundamental importance that understanding government policy and how government works is, 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 is crucial. And you have to look at it as part and parcel of your strategy. Secondly, for Africa, you have got to understand that you're operating in an environment in which there is very, very little infrastructure. The currencies are always depreciating. And therefore, the way you set your targets has to be fundamentally different from a society in which you don't have to worry about currency and devaluation. Um, I talk very much about how um, in, in companies in Africa, um, you cannot delegate as much as you would be able to delegate in, say, the UK, because there's a shortage of trained and qualified talent. That means that the burden of leadership is much greater. Um, on the other hand, I say that while it is the case that in some sense Africa is politically risky, on the other hand, there's a huge first move advantage to Africa. So if you are a company that gets in there first and establish itself, it's very difficult for you to be dislodged by somebody else, unlike a company in the United States, which is an intensely competitive environment. And while there's not that much political risk in the sense of coup d'etats, you do have the environmental suits, the legal issues, and the intense competition from other companies, which ensure that every 10 or 15 years, the, the list of the great American companies changes. I mean, obviously, Africa is a vast continent, and um, to, to talk about it as if it is a sort of single unitary entity, um, I, I, I imagine it's obviously wrong. And so when you are preparing your course, I mean, how do you deal with that huge uh, variety of, of countries, both in terms of their legal, political, and economic structures? It is correct to say that Africa is, uh, is not a single country. That's correct in one sense. However, the problems that they face, all right, are fairly similar, <laughs> you know, low income per capita, all right? When you say there's a market for goods, what constitutes that market? Is there really a middle class to which you can sell certain kinds of goods? They both share political systems that are largely authoritarian systems, all right? Um, civil society and private business is largely weak. They've got poor infrastructure there. Um, yes, it is correct that in most of them, there are courts and there are legal systems, all right? The court processes are huge and therefore the advice any competent lawyer would give you is if you can avoid the courts and then use the legal, use law in a sense as an additional weapon in your bargaining position but you seek to avoid going to court because it's a 10-year slog in the law courts and in all honesty those elements are fairly similar with most african countries and in fact they do share some similarities to a lot of countries in asia and in latin america so from a from, from a teaching point of view, um, you know, I, 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 I'm relatively comfortable uh, looking upon Africa as, a, as an entity. Can we just um, 
focus for a while. Incidentally, the advice to stay away from the courts is advice you'd give to most most businesses in the UK as well, and certainly in the United States. But can we just focus for a moment on 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 the courts and processes of law um, in, in Africa? As Tim says, this is a there, there's a very wide variety of states, countries nations in Africa but but what's the, I mean how would you characterize the level of progress in terms of developing reliable due process systems in 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 the most if I can put it this way the most developed countries in in in, in Africa how's that going there are positive features and there are negative features and um, and I'm I could, I'm speaking now without including South Africa because I think the South Africa's judicial system is far more institutionalized than that of that in the rest of Africa. Now, on the one hand, um, the 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 principles of separation of powers are more entrenched than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. So a Supreme Court in the 1960s had great difficulty opposing a president who had just won independence for the country and who in many ways was a mythical figure, right? So, 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 so there's far more independence from that point of view. Um, now, on the negative side, we have the fact that the courts are so, or, or judges, and the, and the individuals who work in the justice ministry are so poorly paid and work in such appalling conditions that they do not attract any longer the best and the brightest who study law. And as I'm sure you would agree, that the, the brilliance and the competence of the judges is fundamental in having a successful, progressive, and functioning legal system. And, and indeed, um... Bad employ, bad payment, bad conditions are, are often a precursor to corruption. Absolutely, absolutely. They, they, they work hand in hand. They are hand in hand. I remember being in Singapore once and having a meeting with the Attorney General there, and he was telling me how much civil servants and judges earn in Singapore. And it was even many years ago, a quarter of a million pounds a year. They were on very high salaries. So, so, so low salaries are a real problem. Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, and and just the just the non-functioning of the of the of the, the the failure to use the most modern technologies in keeping court records, in recording all of the arguments, okay, and infusing the judicial system as a whole. I mean, that's that's such a basic um, a point, isn't it? Really, and what what are the where the resistance comes from? Where to? tackling corruption or the temptations for corruption in the judicial system in just in terms of, of of business and attracting foreign investors and so on the the strength and independence and impartiality of the legal system is absolutely fundamental isn't it you see, it, it, you see the judicial system is strong in many of the countries in africa you know but 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 the problem we face we face now is that increasingly they're becoming a club of their own all right and 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 the only way to no, I won't say the only way, the obvious way to reform them is from outside, because very few systems that are self-regulating are able 
to reform themselves internally unless you have very inspired leadership there. And the danger is that when governments have tried to take steps to reform them from outside, um, there runs the risk and the danger that the independence of the judiciary is affected by the very act of, of, of executive intervention in the judicial system. So, for example, um, on issues of corruption, uh, where the executive in some countries has, has taken action against a particular judge, it has often been resisted and the argument has been made that we have our own method for, 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 for calling judges to account, all right, and those, those methods are within a judicial council. And, uh, and, and, so, and that has often not been satisfactory. I'm not sure I have a way of resolving that problem, but, but that's, a, that's the best I can do in, in stating what the problem is. When I was doing some work um, several years ago on corruption um, in the Ukrainian judiciary, mm. we, we found that one of the best reforms was to create a very independent um, body which existed to scrutinize uh, the judiciary, not in terms of its judgments, but in terms of its propriety and behavior. So some sort of external body, external to the judiciary, that was a guardian of the integrity and values of the judiciary. Um, as I say, not in terms of the sorts of decisions they were making in court, but in terms of their personal and financial conduct. And that seems to me to be a helpful way. But, but can we, can we, I, I just want to open this out, if you don't mind, Keen, because we're talking here about the, the development of institutions which would be very familiar to Americans or French people or British people or, or Germans. But there's another model, isn't there? And uh, it's an increasingly um, persuasive model in the world. And President Xi, in his speech to the uh, Communist Party Congress uh, this week, has laid out very clearly that the Chinese are providing an alternative model for the world, an authoritarian model, a directed state with elements of free enterprise, but a powerful set of uh, central direction uh, mechanisms. And there's not much place for due process, rule of law courts in that model. So so what about China and Africa? That, I mean, that's a big story, isn't it? It has become a bigger and bigger story over the last 15 and 20 years, because Africa could choose alternative models to the sort of models that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, the way I would look at, the way I like to look at that uh, China is to separate two distinct issues. I mean, we can argue, are they related or are they not related? But, but, but let me start separating them. One is the issue of the centralization of power in China, which is something that is taking place right now. And I think that what um, Deng tried to put in place um, was to, while accepting the one party, uh, the one party framework, was hoping that a certain amount of internal democracy could take place by having ten-year term limits. Yeah, this is Deng Xiaoping. Yes, this is Deng Xiaoping. Yes, and um, and that is what she has effectively stopped. All right. So, 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 in that respect, um, uh, she is is an anomaly. Okay. Now, now, but however, the tremendous increase in prosperity within um, China took place under Deng and his successors. 
Deng Xiaoping and his successors. All right. So, so, so I don't think that Xi's model is crucial to economic success in China. Okay. If anything, it may be that it ends up being a harbinger of a drop in in economic in 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 economic standards of living, and not a harbinger of it. Now, the the part that I think is important for Africa is that China um, successfully raised more the standards of living of more poor people than almost any country has within a short period of time. And I think that we do need to try and understand why did that happen? What did they do differently? Okay, and the model seems to be, seems to be one, a powerful, relatively meritocratic bureaucracy, okay, side by side, having certain liberties given to certain private companies and the use of certain special economic zones, all right? And that combination seems to have been what caused that success. So, so, so for me, it comes down to that balance between the state and the markets. My question, my question really is, I agree, I agree with all that. My question really is uh, this, that, that this is a somewhat alternative model to the what you might call the the Western model, uh, which yes. is the model that that the West has always assumed that in an ideal world Africa would adopt more or less, yes. because the yes. West thinks that the West thinks it knows best always. Yes, but but the Chi the Chinese model, as you've described it, is nevertheless an alternative model. Yes, for yes. Um, Africa, it's less democratic, if if we want to use that word. It's it's more directed. It's more authoritarian. My question really is, given given the inroads that China has made in Africa in recent years, do you think that's a model that will increasingly commend itself to African nations over and above this, 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 what I've described as the Western model? And to add to Ken's question, um, Ken's been focusing perhaps on the political model, but there's the economic um, side of it in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative and the extent to which that has shifted China, uh, African states' uh, eyes east eastwards, uh, and, and so it, what? If you could talk about that, well, okay. Um, let's just say that I don't see um, the China model um, catching on in Africa. All right, partly because uh, China itself is not aggressively pushing it. All right. And uh, partly because, partly because it requires a very powerful bureaucracy, all right, a meritocratic bureaucracy, bureaucracy, and 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 in most African countries, they just are not heading that way at all. In fact, if anything, when I look at China, I actually see more. I actually see an interesting similarity with Singapore. All right, you know, you know, both of them centralized, both of them largely single party, both meritocratic, and whether it's the Singapore model or the communist China model, I don't see Africa moving in 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 that direction. They're not. If anything, what I do see is a weakening state apparatus. All right, at a time at which my view is that the state in those in these African countries. And the state and state institutions need to be stronger and need to be more powerful 
and one in which the Washington consensus that economic development is done best by the government that does least, all right, um, that, that, that has been what we have adopted, and I personally think it is a mistake. And does the weakening does the weakening state apparatus that you talk about include weakening processes of law? Um, 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 yes, yes, it involves the weakening processes of law. All right, but its major its 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 major its major its its major features to me, you know, um, have to do with um, efficiency and capability. All right, and it's increasingly extending to the security apparatus as well. You know, which which has left some African countries this paradoxical situation that individuals have much more freedom, not necessarily because the leaders are committed to freedom, but because the security uh, forces are inefficient and, and far flung. All right. So that's the first point I'd like to make. Now, on the belt and uh, on, on on China Chinese economic investment in Africa, my own view is that that has occurred for two reasons. The first is that the West largely withdrew from investing in Africa in the years, in, in the decades, the 80s, the 90s, and the noughties, all right? And therefore, China came into a vacuum. That's number one. The second was that the way we were taught at business school, and I still remember very clearly, it's that investment in in, in infrastructure, whether it's physical infrastructure or social infrastructure, don't make money. They are social goods, all right? And we were taught to neglect that. Now, the Chinese approach was very different. It was infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. No, a, a bit different from the Soviet view, which was very much the capital goods industries, but it was very much that that's the case. And so only the Chinese were willing to make those long-term investments in roads, in bridges, in electricity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, 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 so for me, it's the absence of the West that has allowed China this entry, all right? And, um, and unless there's a change in mindset in the West, I, I suspect it is going to continue. Something similar has been happening, of course, yes. in Latin America, yes. certain parts yes. of Latin America. Team, can we can we change um, the subjects um, for, perhaps for, for the last bit of of our discussion? You and I had dinner a few months ago, and um, the war in Ukraine had been raging by then for several months. And um, it, I mean, the, the, the atmosphere, as you probably know here in Britain, is you know you you do not hear people ever taking any other side other than in favor of Ukraine and against Russia as the great evil um, war criminal, breaker of international law, and so on. But in our discussion, you you sort of enlightened me in a way that I, I found fascinating about why the view from Africa is very different. And, and we talked about the history and so on. Um, and of course, at the UN General Assembly in, in March, there was a resolution to condemn and apportion exclusive blame on Moscow for the invasion. And, and many African countries uh, abstained, and some voted against that motion. And so 
can you just perhaps tell us about about why things are viewed differently in Africa? Okay, happy to do that. And and I would also add that when I speak to colleagues of mine from the Middle East, Asia, and also Latin America, I find that they have a similar view to a lot of the nations in Africa on this. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so, but the first thing I'd like to say, Tim, is that for most African nations, the notion of one country walking, crossing the border and going into another country using military force, and then after a couple of months announcing an annexation, all right, is something that I think most African countries find disturbing, all right? So I want to put that on the table as that it is not entirely one-sided, all right? Okay, so, so, so that I have to put there now. However, the elements um, that, that, that often don't come out, I would say in the West, are, are the following, number one. For all the African nations, the fundamental principle of non-alignment has been a principle that we have all adhered to since the 1950s, when uh, Sukarno and Nehru posited the principle that as, these, as our countries become independent, we do not want to either be in Russia or with the United States. So if Putin is saying or is arguing that we want a, he wants a Ukraine for principles of his own, of Russia's own security protection, which is, has nothing to do with the NATO, has nothing to do with the Warsaw Pact, but is purely neutral, that will get a tremendous amount of sympathy within an African country. You will find no African country saying, um, oh, well, it's their right to, 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 to join any military pact that they want, for most African countries, their attitude would be, why would you want to join a military pact? And that the very act of joining a military pact, if you're a Cuba, or if you're a Canada, or if you're a Mexico, next door to a certain sort of a, a big power, is itself the cause of, of, of conflict. So, so, so that's one. So this is so this is very interesting. So this this so this cast of mind you're saying goes back to the yes. great non-aligned movement when Yes. positively declining to join one or other military pact was a moral choice yes it was a moral choice and it was a it was a it was a moral for, for some they almost saw it as a moral imperative not to get lost so, so that's so that's the first thing you know and, and then and, and then i and then i think the second thing is that is that it is is that it's often posed as a battle between freedom all right and dictatorship the free nations and on the other side the these other countries are dictatorships and africa should take one or the other now 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 now, now for us african countries there's something that always hits you slightly odd when we find european countries who for us are the colonial powers standing and waving the flag of freedom now, it reminds me very much of a story my father once told me about how in 1942, or 40, I think it was 41, he was in secondary school, and the English headmaster called all of the Africans in his secondary school to announce the fall of Paris 
and the freedom was about to be extinguished and that uh, they were all going to be drafted to fight for freedom. And my father always told me he never understood why this headmaster didn't get that it just did not resonate for African students who had no freedom themselves. <laughs> all right. And, and, and so, yeah. the, the, so, so in, in a sense, this is the kind of thing that we see occurring right now. We don't see it that way. We see it more as this is a big power conflict between Russia and between the, and between, uh, and between the West. Uh, we, we, the way we see it is that um, the way we see it is that um, Russia lost 20 million men in the Second World War. There should be some understanding and some sensitivity taken to how they feel about their borders. Um, we don't think it should have been solved by Russia crossing the borders and launching an attack on Ukraine, but we, but we feel that this is a conflict that need not have taken place. But but it's, I suppose it's one thing to, uh, as you say, um, have an appeal to freedom, which may not really uh, ring too strongly, as you say, amongst African countries who who regard the, the past history as as of the West having no interest at all in African freedom. But I mean, there's one. Is there not one view also, if you look at it from the point of view of law and international law, and and the, and the post Second World War international rules based world? And if you are looking at the invasion of Ukraine. Um, it, it, it's in breach of the UN Charter. It's a, a breach of international law. It's a, a crime of aggression under the Rome Statute, and so on. And I mean, to use an old cliche, two wrongs don't make a right. And, and can one ignore the legal, the international law aspect of it? I would, I would agree with you, Tim. I would agree with you, Tim. You can't. You know, I do think it was a breach of important conventions and important laws i do think that 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 those laws and conventions are there with good purpose all right um yes i will i'll probably point out to you that we look at cuba we look at iraq they too were breaches and we could then say two wrongs don't make a right all right and um and i would say to you that um that that that, that I think that um, it in a in a real sense um, miscalculated. All right, maybe he should have drawn the line at at formal entry into NATO or something. But certainly, one of the effects of his actions have been to basically unite Europe in a way in which Europe has not been united in a, in a very long time. Um, now, I think one other thing, one other thing I would like, I would like to just point out to you is that for African nations, um, we also um, feel that we, 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 we are suffering two consequences. One is the impact of this conflict on oil prices, okay, which is when Europe says we shall no longer uh, buy oil from Russia that has an impact on oil prices. And then we have a second issue that arises, which is the impact on food prices on Ukraine. So we find ourselves in a terrible position right now. And on top of that, there is the increase, the, the increasing use of secondary sanctions that the United States increasingly saying, you cannot 
deal with Russia economically, you cannot deal with China, and all of these things constrain our sense of choices and increase our economic difficulties. I think this is a huge issue, actually, which is going to cause greater and greater resentment around the world, the way that Western treasuries are seeking to control terms of business um, around the world, even if it's, it's, it's uh, in, 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 a, in a just cause, if you think it is a just cause. I think that's a big and unfolding issue. But can I just, can I just take us back for, for one second um, to, the, to the, the, the question of support or not support for Russia or um, Ukraine. I mean, I, I completely, I mean, I, 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 quite un, I quite understand that the West has traditionally been insensitive uh, to Russia fears of attack uh, from the West. And there's been a long history of that. And perhaps we didn't pay enough uh, attention to it. But that only works as an argument here if Ukraine really did um, represent a threat to Russia, rather than simply being an object of Putin's imperial uh, ambition. I mean, if the reality here was that this was a brutal invasion by a nuclear regional superpower targeting its smaller, less powerful neighbour, wouldn't you expect that to engender some sympathy for Ukraine uh, in Africa? Yes. Uh, in fact, I would say to you that that is what probably um, engages more sympathy than anything else. Okay, it is it is it is it is the picture of this large country sending tanks, sending troops across the border of a much smaller country. The pictures of people fleeing the country. All right, uh, the very one-sidedness of the battle. That is what I think is what commands a large reservoir of sympathy and support within most countries. That paradoxically is it, more than any other argument. It's not, it's, not, it's not sufficient to change the position of governments that they won't, for example, condemn Russia in the United Nations. I don't think it will do so um, because paradoxically, um, the Soviet Union also enjoys a certain reservoir of sympathy given their consistent stand for decades in support of independence for African countries, their support of, um, of freedom in Zimbabwe, in Angola, in Mozambique, and South Africa. And that's something that definitely a lot of people tend to forget that they do have that reservoir of, of, of sympathy. But there must be limits on that sympathy. What if Putin resorted to chemical weapons and, uh, and, and nuclear weapons? Oh, I think that um, I think that the resort to chemical or nuclear weapons would have a major impact on a lot of the countries, and I think that the kinds of initiatives that you've already seen in countries like, for example, UAE and Turkey, uh, which have had uh, which have not condemned Putin, but at the same time are engaged in discussions with Putin, I think you'd see an intensification of that. Well, Keeb, um, we, we, we could go on and on and we could talk and try and imagine Africa's reaction if China <laughs> invaded Taiwan. But, that would, um, be, very, that, that perhaps... would be very interesting. That would be very interesting. <laughs> but, but that hasn't happened yet. I'm also conscious that it, we're recording this on a Saturday afternoon and your beloved team, Manchester United, um, is taking on Chelsea, I think, in about half an hour. Or yes, so. yes, yes. And... And living in Chelsea right now as a Manchester United supporter, I feel very much like Zelensky must feel. 
All right. <laughs> I think there are lots. Of, I think there are lots of Manchester United supporters living in certain parts of Chelsea, Keem. <laughs> anyway, but um, but seriously, Keem, thank you so much um, for joining us. It, it's it's really been uh, it's been fascinating. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much, Ken. Ken, Ken, thank you very much. And I and I really mean it when I said that we should, as three musketeers, uh, make a visit and do something together at Oxford. Yeah, we'd love to do that. And thank you very, very much for for taking part in this in this discussion. It's been fascinating, and we very much hope to welcome you back at some time in the future to 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 continue the discussions. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, thank you. And you'll be coming to Harvard Business School to talk, both of you. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the Law and Politics uh, podcast. Um, I hope very much that you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have enjoyed it, please follow us. Uh, we have plenty more episodes on our homepage, so share this one and share others that you enjoy. Uh, the producer for this episode was, as ever, Billy Lawrence, um, and we look forward to joining you again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>